Virginia. What a beautiful song and even a more sweeter message. Only by your grace. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. Amen. The gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Wow. Been given a lot of things in my life, but none, none more special than the grace of our Lord Jesus. I hope you can say that this morning. And uh, boy, with that being the, the groundwork, uh, today we move on as we see the church of Smyrna. They're in Revelation chapter 2, so I'm asking this morning for you to open your Bibles there to Revelation 2, and we'll begin there in verse 8. And as you find your place this morning there, I'm going to ask that you stand as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. Beginning in verse 8, Revelation 2. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Father, we... Just approach your throne of grace this morning in a time of need. And I pray, God, that you would prepare our hearts this morning to, and our minds to receive the message. And God, just as this church was faced with unimaginable circumstances, and God, no one is exempt from persecution or tribulation. And God, whatever you've called us to do, Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us, God, to look to those who came before us. And God, be encouraged and inspired to live a faithful life for you. And God, there's a lot today um, in just reading and thinking about this church. And God, I pray that you would help me to be concise in the sense that, Lord, it's what you would have me to preach. And give us a heart of gladness that we'll receive that today by faith and in faith that we may fulfill your will in our life. God, draw sinners to that cross this morning where you bled and died for our sins. And God, whatever decisions that need to be made today, Lord, I pray that you would give us the boldness and the strength to do that. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. As we look this morning at this second letter to a physical church in what would be known then as Asia Minor, today it is modern day Turkey. As a matter of fact, the city of 
of Izmir is built over the ancient ruins of the church or the city of Smyrna. Now, Smyrna is an interesting word because the linguistic root of that word is the word myrrh. Now, you'll recall that in, in the scriptures, we find the word myrrh a, a lot. And myrrh is always used in, in reference to a sweet fragrance, but it, its primary use was for the embalming uh, of the dead. It was very strong. As a matter of fact, if you've ever had uh, you know, an opportunity to smell uh, myrrh, it is extremely strong. I mean, just the smallest amount would, would literally fill up uh, a room, it is so strong, same as uh, frankincense for that matter. And we're reminded in Scripture that at the birth of Jesus, actually later in his life when he was a toddler, uh, wise men, the Magi, came and they gave him gifts. Uh, we're told of three specific gifts. They give him gold, the gift that's fit for a king, and he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. They gave him frankincense, which is uh, an oil, uh, that was used in ministering, so it was a gift for uh, a high priest. And of course, Jesus is our high priest. That's why we don't need an earthly one, because we can go directly through the throne of grace this morning. And then there was the gift of myrrh, uh, probably an, uh, an odd gift to a toddler. And yet it spoke of his sacrifice as he would be Savior, that he would die. And uh, we see that in order for you to get the, the fragrance from this plant, from the myrrh plant, it's, it's like aloe in the sense that it has to be crushed. Uh, you know what mint is, you know. If you go to some of these sure enough fancy-smancy restaurants, they'll bring you some of this stuff out there and you can crush it up and put it in your tea if you want to and it'll flavor it up a little bit and then it'll be on your hands the rest of the night. Uh, but... Uh, you, you know, you don't smell it. I have some at the house uh, that I brought back from my brother Terry's up there at North Carolina, and, and I planted just a piece of it, and it literally will take over everything. I mean, it's just this ginormous bush now. But anyway, when you take that leaf, leaf and you, you press it and you begin to grind it, that's where you get the fragrance, and myrrh is the same way. And so I want you to picture the idea here this morning that when we're talking about the church of Smyrna, the name that's given to them specifically is this idea that the church of the living God is being crushed. And because of the, the, the nature of the suffering and the persecution and the crushing of them, the church is radiating with a sweet, sweet aroma. Um, as a matter of fact, I think it was Ironside, H.A. Ironside, who would say that during this immense period of persecution that was roughly 200 years, 200 years of where you were being pressed and crushed, Ironside would say this, he said that this time sets forth in this period when the church was crushed beneath the iron heel of pagan Rome, yet it never gave out such a sweet fragrance to the Lord as in those two centuries of almost constant martyrdom crushed and they were being crushed by the government on one hand and they were also being crushed by those who Jesus referred to as those who say that they are Jews but they are of the synagogue of Satan 
Now, if we were looking at this passage this morning, we could break this out into three, what I would say are three distinct points this morning. And the first one is, like we said uh, with the church at Ephesus, God gives them an assessment. In other words, the Lord, in the letter that John is writing, He says, uh, this is an assessment. This is what Jesus, this is not what a preacher thinks or somebody in the, in the community thinks. This is the Lord giving an assessment of the church. He gave us an assessment of Ephesus, and He gives us a, uh, an uh, assessment of the church at Smyrna. And this is what he says. Now you'll remember from Ephesus that he praised them for some things that they were doing that was very good. But the Lord had also a rebuke for the church at Ephesus. He said you need to return to your first love. You need to return uh, to, the, to the love of God. And so we saw the, the apostolic church uh, age in with a departing of the faith, right? And so we move now into this church of Smyrna, which is, again, a physical church that occupied a particular place, a city. But it is also representative of the type of church that will exist until the Lord removes His church from the earth. Today, matter of fact, this week, a man that is known as Father Andrew or Brother Andrew passed away. He was in his 90s. Brother Andrew, specifically with his work, uh, in the Eastern European countries, he literally brought millions of copies of the Word of God through the Iron Curtain of the Soviet Union into the hearts of people. As a matter of fact, you could, you could honestly say that the iron gates of communism in that part of the world were unlocked by the power of the Word of God. Which, by the way, is why we sow into the Gideon ministry for that reason. Because the Word of God will not return void. It will accomplish uh, its purpose. And uh, what a testimony. It, you, you know, if you never heard of him, the, the, his life is intriguing uh, just in the way God showed up on so many occasions um, as they would just smuggle those Bibles into the hearts of those who desperately needed the Word of God. So God gives us this picture that this is a type of church but also a church age. And looking through the, the, the hindsight of history, we realize that roughly this second church age was about 200 years long. And it lasted approximately from 100 A.D. to 300 A.D. And then we move into the next church age. And again, so your pastor here today is telling you, his congregation that I love and I've had the privilege of ministering to for nearly 15 years, I'm telling you, that what God is telling us in Revelation is a picture of times, dispensations. And we are living in that last dispensation mentioned in the Word of God. There is not anything after Laodicea. So I don't know how much time we have left. I only know that, that time is running out. Time will expire. The church is going to leave. Uh, and, and, and then God is going to again unfold His wrath uh, upon evil and turn his attention specifically to the nation of the Jewish people. Those things are going to happen at some point. I don't know when. I'm not, I've not been asked to plan it. But I am welcoming it because that is when we are going to experience the fullness and the completion and the glorification of our salvation in full. To God be the glory. So uh, as we look at this today, we see the assessment of the Lord. 
and He praises their works. Notice what He says in verse 9. He says, I know your works. Isn't that great this morning? We have the blessed assurance of knowing that God keeps up with everything. We don't have to. God keeps up with everything. God knows your works. He knows, uh, and He knows our motivation behind what we do. He says, I know your works. I know your tribulation, trouble. I know the suffering. And He says, and the poverty. See, these are all, these three things are part of this age in which they're living in. They have a choice to make. Are we going to be faithful in light of the tribulation? And are we going to be faithful in light of the fact that we have nothing? See, Smyrna was a poor church that was rich. And Laodicea is a rich church that's poor. Because we don't understand the way God's economy works. We gather, we invest, when Christian people above all should realize God owns it all. It's all His. And God has never been in a recession, never been in a depression, and God's never lost a thing, and He never will. That's why we're told to invest in heavenly treasure, eternal treasure. I want you to understand this church was investing in heavenly treasure. They were putting it up and the Lord said, you, I praise you for what you're doing. And in, and in the midst of verse 9 where He praises them for, his, for their works, another aspect of His assessment is He is preparing them for what they're going to face. And He's preparing them that they're going to have enemies within and enemies without. He says, I know those among you the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not. Now he's specifically speaking of a group of people that Paul addresses in the book of Galatians, the Judaizers, the, the leaven, if you will, of, of Galatianism. And that was that not only did you need Jesus, but you also needed all of the Old Testament uh, works aspect. You had to be circumcised and basically in order for you to be a part of the Christian church and a Christian, you not only had to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you had to essentially become a practicing Jew. You mixed Judaism or the law with the grace of God and Paul said, I'll have none of that. It's by faith through grace or, or, or by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's totally sufficient for salvation. It's not about these other aspects of the law. And yet he referred to them as they are of the synagogue of Satan. I want to tell you, I might give you a bad assessment, but when the Lord says you're of the synagogue of Satan, brother, you're at the bottom of the barrel of depravity. He said they were blasphemers. In other words, they what? They, they changed who God was. They sold a false religion, a, a false savior, a false gospel. And the Lord said, I would have none of that. And He prepared them that because of their desire to be liked and to be coddled and to be associated with a, with, with a uh, religion that the Romans authorized, they did so so they wouldn't be persecuted. And the Lord said, I want to prepare you. I want to praise you for what you're doing and I want to prepare you for the enemies that you're going to face. Now when we move 
on down to verse 10, we get the second point that the Lord wants them to understand. And it's the Lord, it's a prophecy. Now, I would say it's a prediction, but I can't say it's a prediction because a prediction entails uncertainty. And God doesn't give predictions. God, God just gives matter of facts. And so it is prophetic in what he says. Notice in verse 2, I mean verse 10, he says, Do not fear any of those things. Tribulation, poverty, do not fear those who are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, even unto death. So he says, don't fear them. I want you to understand suffering is coming. Did he not tell them that? John 16, verse 33, you can't misinterpret. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. You'll have trouble. But he said, be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. God, God speaks of all of you, all of us, all of us who are part of the blood-bought believer, no matter where we are in the world today. He speaks of us as being overcomers and victorious through the Lord Jesus Christ. God, when He speaks of our power under control as meekness, that is not weakness. It is a holy, reverential respect for the power of the Holy Spirit in us to be used when it is needed for God's glory, for our good. And so He said, I want you to understand that you're going to be persecuted you're going to suffer. And he says for 10 days, you're going to have tribulation. Now I want to explain to you what that means. The earliest writings of our church fathers, including Augustine and others, they understood these 10 days to mean specifically the 10 edicts or the 10 days that the edicts would be made, you might say, of 10 specific emperors that would outlaw some aspect, if not all, of Christianity. Now, th th this, is, you will, this is not denied in even secular history. There, you know, there are sometimes some things that are just so obvious you can't cover them up. And the blood of the martyrs in the second century of the church and the third century of the church was so great that you couldn't cover it up. As a matter of fact, and the Romans didn't want to cover it up. They wore it as a badge of honor because they despised them for many reasons. But I want you to understand that that 10 days, book, it's bookended, that period of persecution, those 10 specific emperors, those 10 Caesars, 10 specific eras, edicts of intense persecution for the church, so much so that by the time Diocletian came around, which by the way, the persecution under, under Diocletian's rule was so great it was known as the great persecution. But you know why they endured? You know why the people of God endured? Because they understood that there had been nine before him and this would be the last. And so they held on. I don't know, maybe they had read the scripture there where it says sorrow may endure for a night but joy is coming in the morning. And they believed it. Oh, this time of history was characterized by the martyrdom of Christians. 
And that period of time was, if you look at the bookends of that time of history, it began with a maniac named Nero, and it ended with another maniac named Diocletian. Both men said they would destroy the Christian church, adamantly about it. Nero, and, and look, I'm going I'm to share some things this morning. I'm just going to tell you the gruesome, man. But you need to hear it. Because you young folks out here in your faith, and I listen, I, I like having a good time. But I'm going to tell you something. You need to understand the faith that you possess. And when we got, when I baptized you and I asked you those questions, you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that He was born of a virgin? Just as the Scriptures say that He lived a sinless life and He went to a cross for your sin, and you say, I do, and do you believe? Have you personally asked Christ to forgive you of your sin? Have you received the Lord as your Savior? And you say, yes, you're being baptized into a faith that was watered, that was nurtured on the blood of those in the past that believed what you say you believe. It's important for us to get it. Understand it. I'm not fussing at you. I just want you to understand that it's more than just, just an ism. It's more than a baptismal certificate, man. It's a, it's a part of history where people stood up to the oppressor and said, you can take my life, but you cannot take my soul. Folks, there's some things worth living for. Some things worth dying for even. And our faith stands on the, on the one who died for our sin ultimately and that foundation was built upon others who were willing so that you and I would have faith today would not allow it to die in the generation in which they lived. And we can't either. No, Nero was a, was a, a, a pervert to every degree you could imagine. I mean, we, you know, we, we got folks today that call progressivism the idea of this transgender humanism stuff. Nero already had that going on in the first century. Man. He was a, a pervert on about every level you can imagine. Cross-dresser. This was just part of who he was. Completely immoral. And he would throw these elaborate parties and they would do the, the, the level of debauchery you could only imagine. And this would go on all night long. And the way that he would light up the, the party, he would, he would take some Christian and, and, and impale them on a pole and set them on fire to light his parties. I've met some crazy people in my life, but I ain't never met nobody that crazy, that demonic, that demented. But I want to tell you something. we got folks in our culture today that are just that demented. They're nicer and they look better. And they speak with a better vocabulary. But they are just as demonic to the core as Nero was. On the other end of that bookend, Diocletian, he said basically he would grind the church to powder. There would be nothing left. Outlawed it completely. And yet here we are. You may have heard of Ignatius. Ignatius was someone who studied at the feet of John, the apostle. He was taken to Rome and he was thrown into the Colosseum, you know, where they would gather for a spectacle. 
I always cringe when we like to associate modern-day football with the Colosseum. I, I don't think we understand what the Colosseum was about. I enjoy a good football game. I didn't really enjoy Georgia last night, I'll be honest with you, but I enjoy competition. But when you gather at a Colosseum and you fill it full of thousands of people that are waiting for some guy to be torn limb to limb by a wild beast, yeah, that's a little beyond entertainment, I think. But that's what happened to Ignatius. Accused by the emperor as being an evil spirit, he just simply responded, not an evil spirit, but I have Jesus Christ in my heart. The emperor would engage and say, oh, you mean Jesus, the one that Pontius Pilate crucified? Yes, he was crucified for my sins. And it was there in that arena as the lions would approach him that with a loud voice he said, I thank you, Lord, that, that you have chosen me to honor me this way. I am simply God's grain to be ground between the teeth of wild beasts so that I might become a holy loaf for the Lord. Polycarp, a young man, again, who sat at the feet of the Apostle John, he was arrested and martyred in Smyrna in 155. The Roman governor called upon him to deny Christ and threatened to burn him alive if he didn't. Polycarp's answer was, Eighty and six years I've served Christ. He has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king to save me? You threaten the fire that burns for an hour and then it is quenched. But you know not of the fire of judgment to come and the fire of eternal punishment. Bring what you will. Then there was Justin Martyr, known as a Christian philosopher, beheaded at Rome in 167. And his last words, Justin said, I am a Christian. Having been freed by Christ and by the grace of Christ, I partake of that same hope. Oh, there were thousands of others that you wouldn't recognize. Simpler, humbler people like Blandina. She was just a simple slave girl, lived in the southern country of Gaul. The persecution there was intense. This young girl tortured from morning until night. Her only confession before they slit her throat was, I am a Christian. Among us, no evil is done. The fifth persecution, especially fierce in Egypt and North Africa. Two young women, the noble woman Perpetua and her faithful slave Felicitas. They were gored to death by a wild beast at Carthage, March the 7th, A.D. 203. Although Perpetua was nursing an infant son and Felicitas had given birth to a daughter in prison, the women received no mercy from the Roman officials yet and had to appear before the bloodthirsty mobs at the games. And finally, there was the great persecution. Under Diocletian himself, he and his co-emperor Maximian proclaimed themselves officially as our Lord and demanded the worship of them. Diocletian demanded that he would be worshipped as Jupiter incarnate, the father and the king of the gods. And in 303, he outlawed Christianity entirely and ordered every copy of the scriptures to be surrendered for public bonfires in the city squares. He prohibited, prohibited every meeting of Christianity and commanded that every church building would be destroyed. That's real history. That's not just something your preacher made up. Go look it up. They're proud of it. They're absolutely proud of it. And what was the point? To eradicate Christianity. They took their homes. They arrested them. They burned them. They tortured them all as an effort to persuade others to persuade others not 
to meet and carry on the faith. But yet, what did the Lord say? He said, if you persevere, if you're faithful even unto death, I'll give you the crown of life. There were so many Christians that were thrown to the wild beasts in the arenas that the animals became sick of eating human flesh and would not do so. Soldiers too became so weary of killing helpless, unarmed people that they would throw their swords away. Thus the Lord purified through the fire of persecution the radiant testimonies of those of the believers that would cause more and more pagans to willingly turn to Christ. What Diocletian sought to do through force and through the fire only strengthened the church and it was through the flame and the fire of persecution that the gospel spread throughout the known world. That persecution planted seed after seed after seed. And it would eventually make its way to you and I. The Lord had no rebuke for them. Understanding where they were. Understanding the immense persecution that they were under. Being crushed. He simply told them to be faithful. That it would not last forever. Now we can look at this and we can dismiss it. But I ask you the question. Just a few weeks ago, as I preached on the rapture of the church, I ask you to just simply contemplate the question. Is this logical? I conclude that it is. And I ask you the question this morning. Did these things happen? Did these things happen? Or, or am I just making things up? Have, have I taken a moment over the last week to rewrite history? Update all the websites, Wikipedia, so that they would even have to admit these ten names, these ten edicts, and this 200 years of intense persecution. Folks, the Lord said it was going to happen. And it did. Folks, this ain't blind faith this morning. When God calls you to faith in Jesus Christ, He's not asking you to throw your brain away. Now there's plenty of folks that tell you that's what you've done. That's not what... Folks, our, our, this ain't blind faith. Our, our faith is grounded in the truth of the Word of God that has stood the test of time over and over again, the attacks, the attempts to rid our world. And I mean, folks, listen, if, it's, if, it's, if it ain't true, who cares then? I've, I've never known in my lifetime people who would say there is no God that were so upset about the fact that we worship something they say didn't exist. Mark it down, folks. The devil and his demons and his minions, they will always accuse godly people of what they do openly 
overtly, covertly, they will always accuse God's people of what they are openly doing. And you see that in our culture, even in politics today. Evil always accuses the truth, the right, the beautiful, the good of what it is openly or covertly covertly doing. So did these things happen? Yes. So we have to ask ourselves again, why then? I mean, what was it about that church at Smyrna that caused such an uproar for 200 years? Why? Again, if you don't, if you don't believe it, why is it such a big deal? Well, here's why. The Roman world, and this is, again, you're going to see what I'm talking about. The Roman world was so steeped in their pagan idolatry of just worshiping multiple gods and sensuality that, that Christian people, because they renounced these things, they were hated. In other words, the Romans accused the Christians of not being religious enough. There were actually people in Rome that day who worshipped multiple gods who claimed Christians were atheists. They did. And they despised them for it. And all of the drunken, bloody festivals and the Colosseums and all of the things that the Romans did for entertainment, the Christian people were, they were opposed to those things and they were seen as antisocial. Yeah, it does sound familiar. They were undesirable. And so the Roman world hated them. They also hated the Christian church because they affected certain areas of the economy. The silversmiths were losing money because they didn't buy their idols. And in particular, in particular, the slaves that the Romans would conquer, the church was friendly to them. They did not see them as simply a piece of meat that could just be used and abused. But they saw them as people created in the image of God. And they did not care what they looked like. They did not care what nationality they were from. They did not care how light or dark brown their skin was. They knew they needed to understand who the authentic Lord was and they brought them into the church willingly. And so they were despised for it because they would, the Romans felt the guilt and the shame of what they openly did to their slaves. Christians didn't buy their trinkets. They're whatnots. They're little idols. And every time someone came into the church, that would essentially, you just lost the customer. God give us folks like that today. God's not called us to fund the filth, the garbage, the rot gut. God's called us to be salt and light. And the salt was a was a source of contention and it burned the womb of uh, the wound of their immorality. And they despised him for it. And finally Caesar himself said, I'm God and you will worship me. 
And, and you know what is amazing? None of the church listened. Not a single one of them. I mean, Diocletian was making lockdowns a thing before lockdowns became a thing. And the, you know what the church told him? To go pound sand. That's what they told him. And you know what they would do? This, they would meet in underground burial chambers, chambers called catacombs. They would post a guard, security outside, to watch to see if the enemies of the church were coming so they could, they could have worship and they could grow in their knowledge and faith of the Lord Jesus. See, the Christians were exclusive. They said, no, we won't worship Caesar because the Lord said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. They believed Jesus was the only way to heaven and they would not worship Caesar. And they did not believe, coincidentally enough, they did not believe that when the Lord said to render to Caesar that which is due, the Lord was not saying you should worship Caesar. He, he was saying, if he requires a tax, pay the tax. But you render unto the Lord that which is the Lord. And, and over the last few years, fundamentally, we, we have no concept of, of who we are as a nation. We're not run by a Caesar. We got, we got a guy in the White House that thinks he's a Caesar when he's not looking for dead people. But folks, listen to me. America's a country based on a simple, a simple concept that the citizens are the government. And whoever is in any position, they're there because we have allowed them to be there. Either legitimately or illegitimately, we've allowed that. Because our government is about us, not about them. Which is why at the end of the day, the person with the say is us and not them. Which is why I don't care what the government has to say about what I need to do as a pastor of a local congregation. The answer is, I have an instructional manual. It's the Word of God. I have a commander-in-chief. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I need you, I'll call you. You are my servant, not the other way around. Boy, we need to get that right. They suffered. They willingly suffered. And the church was better for it. The Lord said, be faithful unto death and you'll receive a crown of life. What is the crown of life? The crown of life is eternal life. It is, it is the crown that every blood-bought believer will receive in glory. I'll conclude with this simple quote from Vance Havner. He said, The Smyrna believers could have promised with the Jews and the pagans, excuse me, they could have compromised with the Jews and the pagans and saved their poverty, their homes and lives. But some things are more precious than life itself. Listen to this. Such Christians need no revival. They have the very essence of revival, loyalty to Christ at any cost. Church, if we want revival, we need to revisit that. Loyalty to Christ at any cost. May God give us the strength 
to live faithfully out that calling. Be faithful, church. What time is it? It's time to be faithful. It's time to live holy, faith-filled, on-mission lives for the glory of God. That's what time it is. May God give us the strength to do it. Let's bow our hearts in prayer this morning. Father, we recognize this morning that, Lord, on our best day, we're still sinners in need of your grace and your mercy. And I pray this morning that if we're here today and we don't know you, I pray, God, you would minister to our hearts, that you would draw us, that we would ask the questions, am I really saved? Is this, am I part of something or I am really in the family of God? Am I saved? Do I belong to the family of God? I pray, God, you would stir our hearts to answer those questions honestly. And if we're not, God, as soon as we begin to sing this morning, may we come in faith. May we receive you as Lord and Savior. God, whatever we need to do today, give us the boldness to do it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand our feet.